Hello everyone, I'm Antonia Parker-Smith, the Student Experience Officer in the School of History and Cultures and I'm here today with a fantastic group of people who I've been working with and we have put together Perspectives, which is a podcast in the School of History and Cultures. It's a community endeavour. We want to showcase the diversity of thinking and approaches to scholarship in our school but we also want to look at this in the context of the wider university, its community and the institution. So hosting with me today, I have the lovely Hannah Cornwell. Oh, Hello, Hannah. We also have the wonderful Dan Reynolds. Hello. Hello, Dan. And lastly, but by no means least in our list of co-hosts, we have the fabulous Michelle Cressfield. Oh, I'm fabulous. Hello. <laughs> yeah, I started with an adjective before everybody's name and then I thought, I'm going to have to continue with this because if I don't, it's going to be problematic. <laughs> also with us today is Simon Briarcliffe and Nadia Awell. Simon, it's lovely to have you here. Tell us a bit about yourself. Oh, uh, my name's Simon Briarcliffe. I'm a doctoral student here at the University of Birmingham. So my subject is Irish immigration into Wolverhampton in the 19th century, which sounds very specific, like all PhD topics do, but it takes into all kinds of immigration, social history of the Black Country area. And I'm also a researcher at the Black Country Living Museum. Brilliant. And you have mentioned the key thing that uh, will lead me over to Nadia as well. We are today going to be talking quite a lot about the Black Country Living Museum. Nadia, hello, lovely to have you here as well. Yeah, uh, so I'm Nadia, as Simon mentioned, I am also a researcher at the Black Country Living Museum. I have also worked at the University of Birmingham about 10 years in various university museums. This has been both as a volunteer and a member of staff, so I've got experience of working at research and cultural collections, the Barber Institute and Winterbourne. Oh, amazing, a wide spread of our various <laughs> museums and heritage sites on campus. That's, that's incredible. Well, it, it's really lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, this is going to be a conversation. So Hannah, Michelle, Dan, uh, Nadia, Simon, do jump in if you've got a question or just want to point something out. To sort of start us off, Simon, as we're going to be talking about the Black Country Living Museum, could you just tell us what it is for those of us who haven't had the pleasure of visiting it? The Black Country Living Museum was first thought of in the 60s or 70s um, as a kind of a social history museum to capture the kind of industrial and social history of the Black Country, which probably also needs explaining. So if you're not from the area, the Black Country that we consider is the metropolitan boroughs of Warsaw, Samwell, Dudley and Wolverhampton, that area definitely not Birmingham it's the most important thing you can learn about the back country but in uh, kind of from the 18th century onwards it was the coal producing region which fueled the industrial revolution in the in the west midlands and eventually became one of the most important industrial areas in the country by the 60s and 70s a lot of the the older traditional industries were kind of dying out people got together and formed a museum to tell the social history of the back country so it particularly focused on the kind of the working class, which was quite unusual then at a time when a lot of museum culture was about high culture. Uh, and it's grown and grown since then. So it's a, uh, we currently, well, in an ordinary year, we would welcome about uh, 330,000 people. So it's a, it's a really large attraction. And it's a museum now that's a, an open air museum, a living museum. So it's, we do our interpretation rather than through text panels and glass cases. We do it through costume characters, buildings and collections displayed in situ within the house, within a shop, that kind of thing. I mean, I've been there a handful of times and I've, I've had the absolute best time there. It's a shame that it's, we're in the sort of pandemic situation that we are. 
I suppose its aim from the beginning were to be slightly different to what other museums are. And it sounds like in that sense, it's slightly more diverse and more inclusive than, than others that were created at that time. So is that something that you're continuing on with in your projected projects? I, I think so. I think you're right about we're looking at social history at a time when that wasn't that popular in museums. And we also, I think, do pretty well things like women's history. So we tell the story of uh, women workers and things like that consistently. And with our new project, we're taking the interpretation period of our site into the 40s, 50s and 60s. So at the moment, we run from about the end of the 19th century through to the 1930s. We're very grateful to receive some lottery funding um, and other sources of funding, which enable us to build basically a new town. So we're building a number of buildings to form like a high street and an industrial area that will consist of real buildings uh, or real stories from the black country, real shops, real homes, a number of which will be what we call translocated, which is moved brick by brick um, from site onto the site. We'll be setting them between 1945 at the end of World War II uh, and 1968. Um, we've chosen that as a kind of a nominal cutoff because that's when the last coal mine closed down in the black country. But it doesn't really mean the end of the, the industrial era in the black country at all, but it's kind of a convenient point for us. Uh, and yeah, we're, we're hoping to make the stories even more diverse. Obviously, one of the big stories that we'll be wanting to approach in this that we haven't done so much as a museum so far is to talk about immigration, ethnicity, race, and particularly in light of Commonwealth immigration from the late 40s and 50s onwards. That sounds brilliant and it sounds like it's a really important thing to be considering and doing, especially within the museum and heritage sector. Nadia, just wondering why you think this is such an important step forward for the Black Country Living Museum or why it could be such an interesting development? I think there's a number of different reasons. Firstly, we'll be moving into some living memory here. So for our already standing visitors, and indeed some new ones that will hopefully come and join us on this journey, they'll be able to see parts of their lives represented on our site, which allows us to tell the stories in different ways to an extent, um, perhaps rather than having to prominently rely on archival materials or secondary literature, we can actually use more oral histories and personal testimonies of their memories. I think secondly, it in particular allowing us to focus on themes such as diversity and migration, because they are so evident in that period of time. So it's allowing us to truly understand those and broaden out from usual perspectives that are represented. So they will be represented in our 50s through to 60s town. But I also think that means that we become more and more acutely aware of perhaps where those stories aren't already existing at the Black Country Museum. And as such, Simon and I talk frequently about it. And indeed, with much of our research, we spend time trying to find those migration and diverse stories that should become more prominent at the museum already. Yeah, absolutely. For those of you who are listening, there have been multiple times when Simon and Nadia have been talking and all of us have just been nodding vigorously and agreeing in agreement. And actually, Nadia, you mentioned that you've worked in different museum sites and, and heritage centres, specifically at the university. Do you feel a living museum lends itself more to being able to talk about these stories than these more traditional environments or museum spaces or is it actually just a matter of we need to do it whatever the space wherever we are it's not a matter of ease either either way I think it's a tricky question because I think ultimately all museums and such institutions have a moral obligation to ensure mm. that we're telling these stories so whatever your setup you need to find a way 
to ensure that you're diverse and inclusive, whether that's through the more traditional written text panel, say, that your gallery enables you to do through to first-person interpretation, which we like to use quite heavily. Perhaps what I would say is that the living museum setting, because of our desire to use more and more first-person interpretation, it allows you to create something that feels very authentic and real in that respect. So when you're talking about these kind of more social histories and personal stories, I mean, our historic characters are a formidable force and team. They know how to bring these things to life. So when you're on about the kind of various kind of museological ideas of how you bring these stories and how you make people remember and learn, most importantly, that kind of immersive experience that you get through person-to-person contact is really powerful. I think that's a really important part of the Black Country Living Museum. And, and I think this actually really chimes with something that we've discussed in multiple places across the summer in the department, in the School of History and Cultures, about the responsibility and the importance behind storytelling. And that, you know, in the School of History and Cultures, that's actually such a key part of our job. And I'm looking at kind of Dan and Hannah here, who are key people that I've spoken to about it. How, how difficult is taking that responsibility and moving forward with it initially in the Black Country Living Museum? Because Nadia, you mentioned some of it's going to be in living memory. Again, that's another tricky one, really. But I'd say <laughs> primarily the word that comes to mind is honesty. Honesty in the sense that we ensure it's authentic and well represented. But also, you know, museums aren't ivory towers, much like universities aren't and shouldn't be. We don't operate in isolation. So Simon and I uh, spend a lot of time in the normal world, if you will, going to people's houses and talking to them about their lives and doing these oral history interviews. Because we've gained that knowledge, that doesn't mean that it's ours just to abuse, in my eyes. With a lot of the people that we've interviewed, we still have relationships on, especially with those that are related to the buildings that we're creating. You know, it's their families then in that respect. So I think it's a case of being honest and, you know, continuing to talk to these people. And if there's a particularly sensitive subject around, say, someone's migration story, for example, we talk to them about how that can be represented. Should it be represented? Is there a subtler way of doing it that protects everyone but lets people learn as well? That's really interesting. Hannah, I saw you just wave your hand there. Go ahead. It was more a comment than a question based on what Nadia just said, but I was struck by how because you're working within living memory, there's an accountability there. Perhaps dealing with earlier periods of history, we don't have. With earlier periods of history, we can present the past as we might want to. Reminded of this because Dan was just giving a a paper in our department about imperialism and colonialism and and the effects of the British Empire on shaping of history. Uh, Whereas with what you're doing, as you say, you actually have relationships with these people. Mm -hmm. Therefore, that accountability and transparency is I suppose, more integrated into the kinds of stories you're telling, which is, I think, ultimately, obviously, much, much better than the problems that other museums might have in terms of presenting one perspective or one idea of the past and not integrating multiple voices and stories. This does raise its own challenges. We've noticed this a couple of times. For instance, one of the buildings that we'll be doing is a a foundry from West Bromwich. In the 50s and 60s in particular, foundries were a big source of labour for, in the black country particularly, Punjabi Sikh populations. So the the majority of the Punjabi population that you'll find in the black country now originates in the 50s and 60s when people came over to do work that was required to be done in foundries and metalworks particularly. We're, We're building a foundry to help tell that story as part of it. But you get different perspectives. So we talked to one guy who was a manager there and we asked him about his workforce. And we said, well, uh, did, you, did you have people coming from other parts of the world to work here and anything like that? And he didn't remember any at all. 
which was a bit disappointing for us because this is the stories we wanted to tell. However, we were then contacted by someone whose dad moved from what was then East Pakistan, um, it was now Bangladesh, and he said, oh no, my dad came in 1957, which overlapped with when this guy was managing. And the, obviously the, the two didn't meet, or the, at least the memories didn't meet. So you're, you're working with people's memories, which are flawed, and they remember things as they want to remember them, and, and all, all of that kind of thing. So there's a certain amount of navigation that we have to do through the the memories that we collect we're accountable to the to the people who remember them but with the awareness that memories are not always correct we have an accountability to other other things as well accuracy and to make sure that the stories are told in the most appropriate way yeah absolutely and simon you mentioned you're doing a doctorate at the moment in the school you said it was on irish immigration to wolverhampton have you come up against any of that kind of difficulty in your research with memories and stories and how you tell it and how you write about it in, in your research for the PhD, for the doctorate? Oh, thankfully, my PhD is in the 19th century, so oh, lovely. I, d- I don't have to talk to anybody. That was the main rationale behind choosing the date period, it's, so that I don't have to deal with memories. But obviously, there's, there's different perspectives. I'm particularly interested in how Irish people ended up in one particular area of town, so every town Every industrial town would have had a like an Irish area and it was usually stigmatised and blamed for being the poorest and the most degrading and the most uh, insanitary and, and most dangerous and so on. So I was kind of interested in, in looking at all those things and how stigmas build up over time through the language used by newspapers, by the police, by the press, by medics and all that sort of thing. And the, the association between things like disease and, and Irishness and how to what extent Irishness was considered a racial identity compared to between like the Celt and the Anglo-Saxon. But then, of course, you've got the other perspective. There are plenty of urban histories which talk about the role of the Irish in, in the town. But what I was interested to do was to get the other side of the perspective as well. You don't often get the voices of, of people like that because as very poor people, most of them were illiterate. Many of them probably didn't actually even speak English. So it's, it was quite a challenge to get that. But uh, I've been looking at Irish newspapers recently, which had reports sent in from kind of groups or trying to organise the Irish people in Wolverhampton into a, the early Irish nationalism, really. And even though that has its own class stratification about who's doing the organising, who's writing the letters, it's interesting to get at least some degree of experience of what it was like to actually be Irish that's never never talked about. So in some ways, it's amazing to have access to people's living memories for this work at the museum. In some ways, the same kind of challenges of interpretation and figuring it all out are still there. Just in a different way. Yes, I I completely see what you mean. And and I think there's something really interesting about making sure we find these voices, whether they're in the past and you've had to dig around and find the voices in whatever way you can, Irish newspaper. And I think it's great that we're now actively involving those voices those who are maybe living in living memory so that we're creating that narrative earlier go ahead Dan no it was a question off the back of that actually uh, particularly in the context of the Black Country Museum about the debates about immigration not just Irish but also from from the Caribbean and the African subcontinent but I want to know how actually both of you negotiated you know what was also a period in the Black Country which saw kind of rises of things like English nationalism, particularly from certain members of parliament, which, of course, is one of the ebbing currents in this period after the 50s. And, of course, very much linked after in the 70s with deindustrialization and the economic crisis. I'm very interested how you negotiate that as curators in presenting rightfully very positive aspects of this in terms of stories and good memories that people have. But the balance of that, of well, 
tenser times as well. I wondered how you negotiate that, because as Hannah was saying, this is something as a, as a historian for the sixth century. It becomes very much a cold and academic conversation, which is populated by names rather than people. And I just wonder, actually, this is something that modernists have to deal with. These are people for whom these are living memories. And I'm I'm extremely interested how you navigate that. I, I would say it's it's a work in progress still. I think if I'm being honest, we've done a lot of, I suppose you'd call it data collection, talking to people, getting family histories and things like that. Then we're actually just about to start building. And once the buildings are built, then we'll be interpreting the buildings and talk about these things. So I think we still have a lot of work to do to figure out the most appropriate way to do it. However, this is an area of history that I'm very interested in. And it's really, really complicated because there are at least two MPs that you could be referring to there. For instance, there are some extremely difficult stories. So I'm guessing you're referring to Enoch Powell. However, you could be also talking about Peter Griffiths, who is MP for Smethwick, elected in 1964 on the back of the most racist election campaign you can possibly imagine. Quite how we do that, I'm not 100% certain yet. Enoch Powell will feature in our interpretation, not just as the man behind the rivers of blood speech, but Another of our buildings is going to be an infant welfare centre, so a children's clinic from Wolverhampton. It was in Enoch Powell's constituency of Wolverhampton Southwest, and set in 1961 when Enoch Powell was Minister of Health. When he was responsible for things like making her contraception available on the NHS for the first time, he withdrew support for thalidomide, and he also led recruitment campaigns in South Asia for junior doctors. I think it's important for us to recognise the complexity in somebody like that, because it's easy to be very reductive when talking about somebody who's a controversial figure. And we do need to talk about his views about immigration, but hopefully we can also contextualise those views without condoning them and present him as a more complicated character than perhaps people realised. But again, it's going to be a challenge. Like If we were going to go for full 100% accuracy, on some of these buildings, we might end up finding out that one shop that we that we are interpreting had a colour bar or something like that. Thankfully, we haven't found that yet. But that, that was common in the black country in pubs, in hairdressers and things like that. We might find out that there was membership of nationalist movements and things like that amongst the people that we're talking to. And of course, we'd have a responsibility to, to talk about that. But we also have a responsibility to our visitors because we're talking of people's living memories of this history that we're telling. We're also telling the history of a group of people who are our potential visitors as well and who will want to come and see their own history interpreted within the museum. If we are prominently displaying signs of racism, racial violence, abuse and things like that, then we have to question whether that's the best thing, the most appropriate thing to do as well. So we've got quite a lot of these sorts of issues to work through and I, I'm hoping that complexity is a better solution to it than narrowing individuals like Powell down into one single story which is what they're remembered for so hopefully broadening people's horizons rather than narrowing them. That's really interesting that you said that and actually it's probably be something we discuss further in another podcast at another time but Michelle and I have often spoken about Joseph Chamberlain and his standing within the University of Birmingham. And, and you know, I've done bits of work and, and research bits about him. And he did so much for the city municipally. He was also a raging colonialist. Um, it's important to look at those complexities. It's not about excusing the actions of those people, but it is about perhaps not 
just narrowing it to one narrative, like you say. I think complexity is a really important word here, actually. Thank you for that, Simon. I'll just quickly add to that. Firstly, from my experience of working at the University of Birmingham in museums, I wholeheartedly agree with the complexity around Joseph Chamberlain. And it's something, as museum professionals, we've discussed at length. And perhaps uh, one thing I would say is we have got powerful objects in the collections, everything from inscriptions around the clock tower, which technically fall under the collection, through to singular objects. And then I think the power of the object is something that can truly be used for these difficult conversations, because you can talk about, on the one hand, there's this part of this man's history. On the other hand, there is this which we should talk about when we're talking about the right honourable Joseph Chamberlain. In terms of going back to the Black Country Living Museum, all I really had to add to Simon's points was it is very complex and it brings into question perhaps what interpretation methods we'd want to use in any given scenario. So, for example, would it be appropriate to have a historic character portraying X? I'm not saying we have those answers now. Indeed, that is the sort of thing, as Simon highlighted, we'd have to be working on. But one way I think we can do that sort of thing, whether it's talking about a specific character or the Dudley riots, race riots, we can work with our great colleagues in community engagement. They have those sort of direct links to people and we can say to the people that they know and indeed beyond, what do you think? I think in that respect, co-curation could be very valuable to us. Actually engaging the people around you who are involved. And that seems to be such an important thing. And it's incredibly important and at the forefront for the Black Country Living Museum because of the type of museum that it is. But perhaps it should become more important, as we were talking about earlier, for those other more traditional galleries or museums or heritage sites and spaces. Uh, just before I start closing any conversation, Hannah, Michelle, Dan, do you have any questions that you'd like to pose to our two fabulous guests. Yes, thank you both. It's been such an interesting conversation. I'd just like you both to kind of talk a little bit about why the Black Country Living Museum is important for thinking about the history of the Midlands. How does its presence kind of change the way we think about the Midlands and its history? A lot of people outside the Midlands aren't really very familiar with what the Black Country is as a location. And that has changed a little bit in recent years. Black Country is often been somewhere that's been looked down upon as dirty and grimy and polluted from all the industry or as being overly insular or backward or, or whatever. And that's kind of changed in the last few years. There's been a number of developments, including the West Midlands Combined Authority and, and various council initiatives and things like that. And most famously, the flag of the backcountry, which is probably the subject of her, an entire podcast on its own. But it's done quite a lot in raising people's awareness of the black country and instilling a kind of a pride in it. You can link this to kind of the deindustrialization of the region and what do we replace booming industry with, with some sort of pride in the region. And I think I hope that what we will be doing will be contextualizing some of what it is that we are proud about without telling a story that is solely celebratory of the black country so this is why we were keen to make sure that stories like the positives of of immigration and, and also the challenges that people face and the challenges that people understood that they were facing why those things are important to put into context Nadia will probably roll her eyes at this but one of my pet topics is nostalgia and I'm kind of fascinated by this idea and black country has a thriving nostalgia industry it has a nostalgia newspaper and people, you know, every week there is a new book of photographs and things like this that comes out of old photographs of places. And it's great because it instills a kind of an interest in history, but there can be a challenge that an overly nostalgic look focuses on certain things at the exclusion of other things. And hopefully what we're doing is sort of flattening out 
some of those things and making sure that people understand when they're being nostalgic for a time, they're not in their head being nostalgic for a time before something negative happened that they think ruined everything, but rather that they're being nostalgic for a time when they're really thinking about what was good about the time. So people are nostalgic for the 50s or 60s. There are plenty of good things to be nostalgic for. The people had good jobs. They were paid well. There was strong union representation, which meant their jobs were secure. All these good sort of things. I think by making sure that the, the breadth of history and the breadth of different people's experiences are told in a museum, we can challenge the bits of nostalgia that are cosy and exclude other people's histories and make sure that people's understandings of what they can do is in the present is informed by the past in a really kind of healthy way. One thing that's always really impressed me about the black country is how it's very much served as a kind of nexus, really, for a much wider set of activities like archival keeping, oral records as well. I remember there was a YouTube series about memories from the LGBT community in the black country from the 50s and 60s, particularly with men, talking about their experiences of what it was like to be a gay man in an industrial black country. But I think also from an archaeologist perspective, which is what I am, I think what's been so great about the Black Country Museum is the way it really pioneered the preservation of spaces that were fairly marginal to much wider national narratives about what preservation should be. At a time when it was about palaces, it was about big buildings connected with state. And actually, you know, they've actually preserved buildings which were really in danger in the 60s of just being ploughed out. And I think that really pioneered a model for other places as well. And I mean, you can see it when you walk around I mean, I live in Wolverhampton, but Birmingham, too, in its new phase of big city, how so much of the architecture of the 18th and 19th century is just being obliterated because it has no more use. I think that the black country does a very good way of weaving that together. And as you said, that has an element of nostalgia, which can be problematic because as lovely as anyone that's been there, the fish and chips are great. That is in a world as well that is presenting a time before penicillin. So it's about how you balance up those two very different aspects of the world. But I do think anyone that hasn't been to the black country, it's a great opportunity to see architecture that otherwise would not have survived. So I really urge you to go the minute we get out of COVID. I wish I had the ability to organise a mass trip. Everybody, let's just go. <laughs> Nadia, do you want to carry on with Michelle's question? I think a few points to kind of pick up from there. Um, to sound wholly nostalgic, etc., uh, rather than, uh, you know, the kind of level-headedness of a researcher. The impact that the Black Country has had on local, national, the world is formidable, and it's great to be part of the Black Country Living Museum and tell that story. And indeed, it's really important that the museum exists to tell that story, because I think, I was born in Warsaw, uh, born and raised around here, I think my experience of Black Country people including myself throughout my life, is that we don't necessarily celebrate ourselves that well. And so it's a great way of us saying this is what we've done and achieved. So in that respect, it's also important to me because I am half Syrian, but my other half of the family came from West Brom, Wensbury, you know, it's part of my family's history. So touching upon things like we must ensure we tell people's history appropriately, to me that is quite a personal viewpoint. And in that respect, somewhere like the Black Country Living Museum is social history done to a T. As uh, Dan touched on, you, know, you often just see political histories and royal histories and have this museum in the heart of the black country with its buildings and most importantly with its people's memories, with its living history is so important. I think you said something beautiful there that gives us a really 
nice place to, to end on Backcountry Living Museum it does do and present social history to a tea. It is a really great space to go and learn an experience, which we don't always get, discover and to learn. And I think actually it's also a space where people can go to really educate themselves. And I think that's something that certainly this podcast and this group of people are trying to do it's about opening up these conversations having these conversations about the difficulties around curating around the difficulties of research and living memory and and you know other times the absence of living memory having those conversations opening it up creating this platform is exactly what this podcast kind of wanted to do and it's about using these spaces once they're opened up to then educate yourself and others around you but not to expect someone to simply do it for you and I think that's what the Backcountry Living Museum as a space really really offers while keeping it focused around community and the locality as well. Thank you so so much we're so grateful for speaking to you it's been fascinating we could go on for hours but because I'm going to be editing the podcast let's not (laughs) but huge thank you and until next time bye.